I think what must be becoming clear <coughs> um, from what we've been saying so far is that the Buddha was primarily concerned with cultivating another relationship to the conditioned world, to the world that he described as idapachayata paticca samupada, the this conditioned or this conditionality conditioned arising. This is how he defines um, the, uh, the shift he made on achieving this awakening. He also, of course, recognized that he had arrived at a, a, an insight into the nature of conditionality from a very different perspective within his own consciousness. He talks of two tanna or grounds. One is conditionality, the other is a frame of mind that is no longer caught up in the dictates of, of craving, of formations, mental formations in general, a state of deep freedom and release that he calls Nibbana, a state in which these fires of uh, greed and so forth are no longer operative, at least momentarily. He's freed from them, and in that freedom he encounters this endlessly arising and vanishing world. As a consequence, he recognizes that um, what he's going to, to teach, what he's going to have to say, if he puts this into words, he tries to communicate it, is going to go against the stream. It's going to be at some level counterintuitive. It's not going to be what people of his time, and I think even also of our time, expect a, a person who claims some spiritual awakening to say. In the context of his own time, of course, this has to do a great deal with the beliefs around the nature of some ultimate or absolute reality, which in the Brahmanic tradition is called Brahman or Atman. In other words, that there is beyond, beneath, above, in some mysterious relationship to this phenomenal world, something that transcends it, something that is more true, more real, and something that cannot be reduced to the phenomenal experience of the senses and the mind, the shifting, changing, dukkha-ridden world that we find ourselves in. There are a number of occasions, but relatively few, really, in which the Buddha actually addresses this point. In other words, gives us a sense of where he would stand today on the question of God. Now, one of these passages um, concerns a young Brahmin called Vaseta, who comes to the Buddha and he says to him, 
This is the only straight path. This is the path of salvation that leads one who follows it to union with Brahma, as is taught by the Brahmin Pokrasati. And the Buddha asks him, but Vasita, is there any one of these Brahmins learned in the three Vedas who has seen Brahma face to face? And Vasita replies, no, Venerable Gautama. Now this passage um, suggests that the Buddha is familiar with one of the um, key ideas that runs through the Upanishads. Namely, that the nature of God is such that one cannot know it with one's ordinary mind. One cannot know it. In, in the Katarapanishad, for example, talking about Atman, Brahman, the text says, his form is not to be seen. No one beholds him with the eye. E-Y-E. The self the Atman cannot be reached by speech, by mind, or by the eye, E-Y-E. How can it be apprehended except by one who says, He is? So this is characteristic of a lot of theistic thinking, is that when, in the end, we try to define what this absolute reality is, in order for it to be absolute, in order for it to be God, it cannot be anything remotely similar to a conditioned phenomenon in this world. It is unconditioned. It is the ground of all that is. And so when <clears throat> Vasetta says to the Buddha, no, no one has actually seen God. It's beyond anything we can conceive of, state, it's utterly transcendent. And then the Buddha replies, well, Vaseta, when these Brahmins teach a path that they do not know or see, then surely that cannot possibly be right. It doesn't make any sense. Like a file of blind men go on, clinging one to the other, and the first one sees nothing, the middle one sees nothing, and the last one sees nothing. So it is with the talk of these Brahmins versed in the three Vedas. The talk of these Brahmins turns out to be laughable, mere words, empty and vain. He says, and then he gives an analogy for this, he says, Vaseta, it's like a man who declares that he is in love with the most beautiful girl in the land. And his friends then ask him, but what does she look like? What kind of um, class does she come from? Where does she live? Tell us something about her. And then the man would have to say, well, actually, I've never seen her. And then the Buddha concludes, well, does not the talk of that man turn out to be stupid? And so on. So you get um, a sense here that the Buddha is actually 
simply not taking theistic language seriously at all, it turns out for him to be shot through with inconsistency and contradiction. It basically doesn't make sense. But this does not turn him into a rabid atheist. In fact, these passages are very few and far between. And they're presented almost as a kind of light entertainment, a kind of diversion, a digression, something to be pointed out, to be noted, to be slightly ridiculed, and then left aside. So the Buddha's atheism is not an aggressive, militant rejection of God. It's simply uh, a system of understanding our lives and understanding the world that has no place for ideas such as God or some kind of absolute reality beyond the phenomenal world. It's simply not interested or concerned or sees any relevance in using that kind of language. Now, of course, as Buddhism has developed into a religion, then very often quasi-theistic language has returned. And perhaps the, uh, the, the, the idea of, of choice to suggest this ultimate reality is something like consciousness or mind. That there's more to consciousness and mind than just the sort of consciousness we experience right now. So what does the Buddha have to say about that? There's, again, a very telling passage in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya 38, which concerns a discussion between the Buddha and Sati, the fisherman's son. I think you have that in your handout. And Sati says to the Buddha, as I understand the Dhamma, as taught by the Buddha, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Sati seems to think that there is some sort of consciousness that is constant, that underlies all particular instances or manifestations of awareness or consciousness, that survives physical death. And the Buddha asks him, well, what is that consciousness, Sati? And he says, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there as the result of good and bad actions. And then the Buddha says, misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dharma in that way? Misguided man. In many discourses have I not stated consciousness to arise upon conditions, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. So the Buddha quite clearly recognizes here, and this idea occurs constantly through the canon, the notion that consciousness is an emergent property of an organism interacting with its environment, not the other way around. And then he gives an example of that. He says, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it arises. 
When consciousness arises dependent on eyes and forms, it's reckoned as eye consciousness. When it comes about because of sounds and ears, we call it audial consciousness. When it comes about dependent on smells and noses, we call it olfactory consciousness. In other words, consciousness emerges when certain conditions prevail. And that's what defines it as eye consciousness, nose consciousness, mind consciousness, whatever it might be. Just as a fire, he says, is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it burns, when fire depends on logs, it's reckoned to be a log fire, when fire depends on grass, it, de it is called a grass fire, and so on. So the Buddha completely um, undermines any sense that there is a kind of underlying or underpinning consciousness. Sometimes today this is called a kind of primordial witness to experience. It might feel intuitively that that is the case. But the Buddha suggests that if we analyze our experience, both by thinking about it, by paying close attention to our phenomenal experience of life, we'll begin to notice that consciousness, just like everything else, emerges out of conditions. Nowadays, we would <coughs> see the emergence of consciousness as something that has taken millions, if not billions, of years of evolution. As organisms have become increasingly complex, then their interactions with their environment have become increasingly complex until we get to a point where we can start talking about consciousness as we know it as human beings. We have to be very careful not to reify consciousness as though it is a kind of constant and common thing to all living beings. Consciousness is a part of an evolutionary process, a model that fits extremely well with the Buddha's understanding of consciousness emerging out of conditions rather than something that has some pre-existent reality. And consciousness is something that will continue to evolve. We may not even call it consciousness or our distant future generations may not. We recognize more and more now how dependent upon the complexity of the organism consciousness or the being's awareness of its reality um, cannot be seen to be the same thing. Uh, some very interesting experiments have been done on some of the higher primates, um, the apes. <coughs> if you put a baboon in front of a mirror, the baboon will never get to the point of realizing that that image is a reflection of itself. You put it, I've seen this on film, it's quite funny. The baboon comes into the room, sees the other baboon and goes, Wah! <laughs> and if you do this a, a million times, the baboon will still have exactly the same reaction. If you do the same thing with a bonobo chimp, one of the smarter chimps, 
initially it will make the same reaction, but after two or three times, you can actually see the proverbial penny drop. And the Bonobo sort of clicks to, oh, I get it. And it'll start doing things like... <laughs> and making faces and, and having fun. <clears throat> now this suggests, although again we can't ever really get into the inner workings of the Bonobo mind, but it is something that human beings can immediately recognize as a kind of self-awareness, a reflexive consciousness, an ability to be aware that one is aware of being oneself. So in other words, consciousness, which is often presented with a big C, as though it is just some kind of radiant knowing, is not a thing. It is a process. It is something that evolves and develops and changes. Human beings are very arrogant creatures and we tend to think that our reality is somehow the true one. But if we take into account what we have learnt about evolution, we cannot assume at all that what we now call consciousness and awareness and reality will be anything remotely similar to what, say, in two million years' time, the beings who have descended from us or from the bonobos or from the baboons or wherever will experience the world in that way. Now this whole um, scientific understanding, particularly of, uh, through the, based on the insights of Darwin, completely throw up into question all assumptions we have about any kind of, of ultimate or fixed constants or absolutes whether we call those God or consciousness. We don't live in that kind of world anymore. At least we don't have to. The, the ground has been pulled out from beneath our feet. And the traditional religions are having great difficulty, as we know, to come to terms with this very different way of seeing the world. I personally feel that the, the, the early Buddhist teachings have a, an extraordinary resonance with this sort of perspective, particularly since the Buddha gives primacy to the idea of conditioned arising. There's another passage too about consciousness that I don't have time to go into now. It's in your handout. But just briefly... <coughs> There is two versions, uh, there are two texts in the Pali Canon where the Buddha does not speak of the twelve links of conditioned arising that we mentioned the other day. He speaks only of ten. And when he speaks of these ten links, he doesn't mention ignorance and karma, which are the, traditionally the first two, which in most Buddhist commentarial traditions refers to the previous lifetimes. But he starts with consciousness and name and form. He says, Then because it occurred to me, when what exists does consciousness come to be? By what is consciousness conditioned? 
Then, because through careful attention there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom, when there is name and form, consciousness comes to be. Consciousness has name and form as its condition. Now, again, this is very much has to be understood as a reference to Upanishadic and Vedic theory. In, Upanish, in, in, in the traditional Brahmanic view of things, in when they describe the emergence of the world, it starts with the unconditioned ultimate reality of Brahman, which is formless, which is without characteristics, it's nirguna. And somehow, and this is always a big problem with these theories, what is by nature undifferentiated begins to differentiate. And the, in, in describing the phases of differentiation from unity to difference, one of the phases is called the emergence of Nama Rupa, name and form. And in the Upanishadic tradition, this is a term used for the diversity and, and the plurality of the phenomenal world. Now, in this tradition, consciousness pre-exists that. Consciousness is often seen as a characteristic of Atman, of Brahman. It's somehow built into the very fundaments of being. And now we have the Buddha saying that consciousness actually only emerges when the complex world has appeared. He then goes on to say, this consciousness turns back and it does not go further back than name and form. In other words, it is a feature, it's an emergent property of the phenomenal world. Now, at his time, that was a radical departure from what people would have expected him to have said. And it places consciousness on an equal playing field, a level playing field, with all other phenomena. Sometimes in Buddhism they call, I think this is more in, in the Mahayana traditions, they speak of all phenomena having the same taste. There's an equality of things. There's no privileged element like mind or something that is more primary or more fundamental than anything else. You get this metaphorically in the Avatamsaka Sutra where everything is considered to be interdependent with everything else. It's all one complex, interconnected whole that is continuously unfolding, changing, emerging, and disappearing. Another term of uh, choice that uh, Buddhists have frequently been drawn to in order to reintroduce some kind of um, divine or absolute reality is the term the unconditioned. And uh, this very often leads them to quote this passage in the Udana 8.3 I think you also have in your handout. There is monks an unborn, an unbrought to being, an unmade, an unconditioned. If monks there were no such unborn, unbrought to being, unmade, unconditioned, no escape would be discerned from what is born, brought to being, made, and conditioned. 
But since there is an unborn, an unbrought to being, an unmade, an unconditioned, therefore an escape is discerned from what is born, brought to being, made, conditioned. This passage is quoted widely. Um, and it seems to be attractive because it suggests that there is some sort of transcendent reality. That the Buddha too, in the end, acknowledged this. First of all, this passage only appears once in the entire canon. Um, it's not a central idea at all. You'll find other passages which do talk again of an unconditioned uh, that could also be read in this way. What I find interesting is to ask, why are these passages so attractive? Why is such attention given to them? What motivates us? What leads us to isolate and to select those passages? Also, I think we have to ask ourselves, why when they are, this term is rendered into English, is it given a capital U? <laughs> there are no capital letters in Pali and Sanskrit. And yet, very often when an asankata is translated into English, it becomes the unconditioned with a capital U. Why? What's going on? Why do we put a capital letter? I think the lady got it. We're looking for some kind of God equivalent. Now I think it's quite likely, although I don't know this for sure, that the word unconditioned would already have been in use at the Buddha's time and it would have referred inevitably to Brahman, to God. I think what the Buddha's doing here is he's taking a term that is well understood in his context. He's not throwing it out the window, but he's giving it a totally new meaning. And so we have a passage in the Asankata Sanyutta, which are the connected discourses on the unconditioned, where, where the Buddha says, Monks, I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. Listen to that. And what, monks, is the unconditioned? The destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. And what does that mean? I think what the Buddha is, is doing is he's turning the word asankata, unconditioned, from a proto-noun, which in English becomes the unconditioned, capital U, to a verbal form. He's saying unconditioned and again, we have to remember, in Pali Sanskrit, there is no the. Not only are there no capital letters, there are no deitic pronouns. The. So in other words, we can simply translate this literally as, and what monks is unconditioned? Unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by confusion. In other words, what is of importance here is to realize that 
one can live in this world unconditioned by these things. And being unconditioned by greed or hatred or delusion is, of course, another way of describing Nibbana or the deathless. In other words, he's not positing a state in which one gains some sort of privileged insight into some ultimate reality called the unconditioned, but he's recognizing that by fully knowing dukkha, which leads to a falling away of greed and hatred and delusion or craving, that leads to the experience that you know for yourself in which you are no longer conditioned by those things. And that allows the possibility of entering the stream of the Eightfold Path. So once again, it seems that the Buddha is uh, emphasizing that what he's awakened to is a process. It's a way of life. It's not something that has to do with some privileged mystical experience. And what monks, he then continues, is the path leading to unconditioned mindfulness directed to the body. This is called the path leading to unconditioned. Uh, there's more to it than this, of course. He starts basically, he's basically just mentioning the first of the four satipatthana, the first, first of the four groundings of mindfulness, and then he'll go on to feelings and mental states and dhamma and other elements of the path. But basically you start here, and again I suspect this is also a sort of shock tactic. If you want to know the unconditioned, you don't turn inwards to your deepest uh, ground of consciousness, but you pay attention to your body, your breath, your sensations, the, con the, the way your body is present to you here and now, through your senses. Once again, illustrating how he's making a, a, a complete uh, shift from a tradition that gives primacy to inward states of awareness of mind. It's quite striking in a way how um, this idea of <clears throat> nirvana, of unconditioned or the unconditioned, um, so, so easily becomes a kind of um, absolute for us in Buddhism. And I think one of the reasons that that happens, irrespective of our particular motives, our longing for some kind of other reality, is because it's actually quite difficult to conceptualize um, the nature of an absence. <clears throat> an absence. Nibbana, or unconditioned, are presented by the Buddha as the absence of something. The absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of delusion. And so he's making into a very central idea of his whole teaching the loss of something, the falling away of something, the letting go of something, 
the experiencing that these things do not need to determine our lives, experiencing the, the lack of these things. This perhaps becomes even more pronounced <coughs> in the idea of shunyata, or emptiness. This is perhaps the, 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 the absence idea par excellence, emptiness, emptiness. And again, it's very difficult, I think, for the human mind to consider something that seems to have some sort of spiritual or sacred value to be simply an absence. It, we tend to conceptualize it as another kind of something. I mean, you often have in popular books on Buddhism, uh, you have expressions which say that you know, reality or, or things arise out of emptiness and they return to emptiness. I don't know anywhere in the canon where that is remotely said, but none, nonetheless, we, we're very, it's a very seductive way of thinking about it, that emptiness, again, is some sort of creative or luminous void out of which things spring and into which they then return. In other words, it becomes another God-like idea. We reify emptiness. Now, Nagarjuna, who's the preeminent philosopher, and I would say poet of emptiness, is very, very aware of this problem. And there's a verse in his, uh, his Karikas where he says that em uh, Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of views or letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. In other words, as soon as you set emptiness up as something which you will one day come to have some direct non-conceptual understanding of, in meditation, presumably, then you've actually missed the point. Now this is curious because this was the, I was trained in the, in the Geluk school in Tibetan Buddhism in which emptiness was clearly understood as an absence. There was endless uh, emphasis on this. And they talk of different kinds of absences in Buddhist philosophy. They talk about megak and mayingak, simple absences and implicative absences. But I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> the point is that emptiness is considered to be just a simple absence. In other words, it doesn't imply anything else. It's just the lack of something. It's not suggesting that when that lack when, when that something is removed, then something more wondrous and luminous shows up. It's just a lack. And the purpose of meditation on emptiness was to arrive at some direct uh, meditative insight into emptiness, into the absence of inherent existence, as it is classically defined, the absence of self-existence. Now, philosophically, I think that is a useful way to think about it. But the problem is, it tends to, again, suggest that emptiness is a, is a kind of something, a very subtle something, but a something nonetheless. Whereas for Nagarjuna, emptiness is simply a letting go, 
It's a dropping away of fixed views, opinions, beliefs, attachments, desires. It's the, it's the falling away of that. In other words, I think it would be more accurate to render the word shunyata in English as something more like emptying rather than emptiness. The Sanskrit and Pali do say emptiness. We can't get round that. But if we to take Nagarjuna seriously, then I think we'd be more in tune with his thinking if we think of it as an emptying, which strikes me as just another way of talking about a letting go. And in fact, we could even understand <coughs> shunyata <coughs> as very much a way of describing the, the momentum or the movement of the Four Noble Truths. We open ourselves to dukkha, and in doing so, something begins to fall away, a kind of egotistic, um, acquisitive, aggressive, fearful mind states begin to fall away in the face of dukkha. So there is a kind of emptying that then leads us to moments when there's a kind of complete letting go, which is the experience of, of stopping these things, experience of nibbana, of emptiness. For Nagarjuna, nibbana, nirvana, and emptiness are synonymous. And also for Nagarjuna, emptiness and conditioned arising, paticca are synonymous. Things are empty because they arise from conditions. And things arise from conditions because they are empty of any inherent self-existence. So emptiness, rather than being a privileged religious object, is actually another way of talking about conditioned arising. At the end of Nagarjuna's chapter on awakening, chapter 24 in the Karikas, he concludes by saying, the person who understands conditioned arising, which for him means emptiness, it understands the Four Noble Truths. He actually says it in, the, in so many words. So emptiness, conditioned arising, Four Truths, actually are different ways of talking about the same thing, which is a process, it's a letting go, it's an entering into a way of life, the middle way. The middle way, likewise, Nagarjuna says, is the same as emptiness and conditioned arising. All these terms cohere rather than making emptiness into some special thing. But I found for myself that it's not only in Nagarjuna that we get a, a clearer sense of what this emptying is about, <clears throat> but also in the philosophy of uh, a man called Dharmakirti. Now again, Dharmakirti is arguably the most influential Buddhist philosopher who's ever lived, but he's not really yet made it into the Western Buddhist world of Vipassana meditators and Zen practitioners. In fact, probably not everyone in the room has even heard of Dharmakirti. 
or you might be confusing him with Chandrakirti, who's a little bit better known. D Dharma, as in Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, Kirti, K-I-R-T-I, which means the, the famous one, the famous Dharma, literally, the well-known Dharma, Dharma Kirti. He lived, um, I think, in about the 6th or 7th centuries in India, and his primary contribution to Indian thought, not just Buddhist thought, but to Indian thought, was the development of formal logic and epistemology, which are considered to be rather rarefied topics, and strangely not much um, studied in Western Buddhist uh, circles, particularly amongst practitioners. But in Tibetan monasteries, not only the Gelugpa, but the other traditions as well, the first couple of years of philosophical training, which I did myself with Geshe Rabtan, is exclusively devoted to a study of Dharmakirti. It's very important. It's considered to be the actual, the, 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 the foundation of uh, Buddhist philosophical thinking. Now, Dharmakirti, um, when I first started uh, studying this, um, comes up with some ideas that, again, sound a little bit counterintuitive. Dharmakirti speaks of the two truths, which is not an idea I'm particularly fond of, but this is the way he describes them. And I think what he's doing, in a way, is subverting the whole idea of the two truths, the ultimate truth and the conventional truth. Dharmakirti, by the way, is described as a Sautrantika. That's the philosophical school, Sautrantika, S-A-U-T-R-A-N-T-I-K-A. It means a follower of the suttas. So it's a philosophical school that tries to get back to the original import of the suttas, of the discourses of the Buddha. So when Dharmakirti speaks of the two truths, this is what he says. He says an ultimate truth, as opposed to a merely relative or conventional truth, has to be impermanent. All impermanent things are ultimate truths. <laughs> so what is really real for Dharmakirti are flowers and books and buildings and mental states, hatred, for example, is an ultimate truth for Dharmakirti. Now, when I first heard that, and I'd been studying more the sort of classical Mahayana Buddhism, uh, this to me sounded completely weird. What do you mean? Con conditioned things are ultimate truths. So some, for something to be an ultimate truth, it has to have arisen out of causes and circumstances. It has to be impermanent. And it also has to have a quality that he calls, uh, in Tibetan it's dunjenuba, which means capable of generating effects. That's an important idea. Capable of generating effects. So in other words, and let's take for example a plant, um, let's say a pot plant, growing in a little earthen tub. That is an ultimate truth. It has arisen from previous causes and conditions, namely a seed, and it will also generate effects in the world by producing more seeds, 
and now we would also understand it as participating in the process of photosynthesis, having effects. And these effects are not dependent upon human understanding, human ideas or concepts. If you take human beings out of the picture altogether, as we were in, for most of the life, uh, the history of this planet, the natural processes of biological life go on nonetheless. So these, that is what is real for Dharmakirti. The five khandhas, the five aggregates, are ultimate truths. So what then are conventional truths, relative truths? Well, relative truths are things that only exist because human beings are there to conceptualize them. That sounds abstract. But most, um, for Dharmakirti, most conventional or relative truths are things like absences. So in other words, nirvana, emptiness, the unconditioned, these are just relative truths, conventional truths. They're not really real at all. They're just basically ideas. Now that seems, I think, quite clearly to have turned everything upside down. <laughs> okay, let's try and understand what is meant here. Um, an example would be the fact that uh, in this meditation hall there is no elephant. Figuratively, there's probably lots of elephants. But literally, I think we'd agree there is no elephants in this room. You know, an elephant which would be walking down, up and down here, um, making noises and wrecking the floor. <laughs> Such a thing does not exist in this room. In other words, there is an absence of an elephant in this room. And that exists. There is the absence of an elephant in this room. Do you agree? Good, okay. Now, <laughs> the fact that there is an absence of an elephant in the room is something that is only able to be said to exist because human beings, human consciousness, is able to imagine it. If one of the deer or turkeys wandered into this room, or a dog or a cat, they wouldn't experience the absence of an elephant. They would just get on with sniffing around and trying to find food. But they wouldn't apprehend that there's no elephant in the room. And of course, there's an infinity of absences in this room. There's no dog, there's no cat, there's no grasshopper, there's no millions and millions of things are not here. Now, these things are said to be conventional truths, relative truths. Um, they're also said to be permanent. Not permanent in the sense of eternal, because obviously if an elephant suddenly arrived in the room, there'd be no more an absence of an elephant. But they're permanent in that they don't change in a kind of natural, physical, biological way. They don't change from moment to moment. They're not part of a living process. They're just conceptual constructions. So nirvana, the absence of greed and hatred and delusion, is in essence no different from the absence of an elephant in this room. It's a conceptual construction. 
It's just an idea. It's an elaborate idea, but it's a very, very useful idea because it suggests that we can do something about greed, hatred, and delusion. We can get to a point where they're no longer operative in our lives, in which they're absent, but the absence of greed and hatred and delusion is no more real than the absence of a unicorn in this room. It's just a conceptual construct. It's a human idea. Let me illustrate this with a more concrete example. When Martine and I bought our house in France, some years ago now, there was in the garden an atelier, a a work shed, a wooden shed that had been there probably since about 19, at least since 1945. Martine's great uncle, Oncle Robert, had (laughs) built this thing, (laughs) largely it seems, in order to house a bunch of of in German industrial machinery that he'd got on the cheap at the end of the war. <laughs> Great big metal steel things, something to do with the production of shoes. He, he was a cobbler, but he never had any use for them. So they just stayed in this shed. And the shed, over the years, became overgrown with ivy and honeysuckle. And it became rather dank. And it created between the house and itself, a sort of corridor that was where the light couldn't get, and there Martine's mother and grandmother used to keep the garbage pails. And another very important reason for keeping the shed was because once a year, the feral cats had their kittens in it, (laughs) which again added to its uh, delightful aspect. Now, rural French uh, uh, people do not, in principle, get rid of anything. (laughs) Because you never know, it might come in use one day. We might want to use the old industrial machinery. When we bought the house, one of the priorities was to get rid of this thing. And so after we'd done the necessary restorations on the living space, we then got to the point where we could get rid of the shed. So we invited a, well, first of all, we got a scrap metal merchant to take out the machinery. Then we invited a friend who needed the wood to dismantle the shed and take it off to his commune in the Pyrenees. (laughs) And so from one day to the next, the shed became an absence. Now, this had a enormous transformative effect on our whole living space. Suddenly, light came into the lower part of the house. It wasn't blocked anymore. Not only that, from the house, instead of looking at this this wooden shed with ivy on it, like a few feet each away, suddenly you saw the rest of the garden, you saw the hills in the distance, you saw the abbey, a ruined abbey to the left of our house, the whole space was opened up. And for a few days, I would come out of the house, go to where the shed was, and celebrate its absence. (laughs) It was a positive experience of shedlessness, or of no shed. 
I think you can see where I'm going now. The same, of course, is going to be the case with no self or selflessness. Experientially, I greatly enjoyed the new perspectives that have been opened up, the new uh, access of light, a new vision. But after two or three days of enjoying this, the effect became less and less. And sometimes we'd had visitors, and I'd take them to where the shed used to be, and I'd say, you know, there used, there used to be a shed here. And they would go, yeah, right. <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> it had no significance. <laughs> they couldn't see why I was so excited about the absence of something. And after about a week or so, I could no longer get the same hit off the absence of shed. <laughs> I was bound at that point to actually then get on with the gardening. <laughs> and now, of course, some years later, it never even crosses my mind. The garden has had its transformative moment, and now we have to attend to what needs to be done where the shed was. And we have a lawn, and we have a little hedge and stuff. Now, this example, I think, illustrates quite well Dharmakirti's idea that the experience of not-self is not an experience primarily of there being no fixed ego, but the experience of the skandhas, mind, sorry, body, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness, minus ego. What you actually experience, what you actually encounter, when these fixed notions and obsessions fall away, is you experience your physical, emotional, mental, environmental world without that constraint or that constriction or that kind of fogginess, almost, of ego, of me and mine, of craving, of hatred, of fear. In other words, like the removal of the garden shed, the world is enabled to open up in a way in which it feels illuminated, in which it feels somehow liberated, in which things are now visible that previously were obscured, enlightenment, if you wish. But once this, the, the shock effect of this loss or this absence wears off, then it's just a question of this being your reality now. Now I think what happens uh, often in, 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 in med meditative experience or the practice of the Dhamma is we do have moments in our practice where there is a rather uh, shocking, a difference opens up in our sense of the world. Um, maybe some of these things really do fall away. And we suddenly find ourselves in a sense of our being, our world, that's so different from what it was like before. There's the temptation to interpret these experiences as though another kind of consciousness altogether has now emerged. Instead of thinking that actually now I'm conscious of the world 
in a way that has been liberated from the obscuring and constraining elements of craving and egotism and so on. That, I think, is a a, a very easy conceptual mistake to make. So the Dharmakirti is pointing out how uh, the practice we're doing may entail moments of, of, of radical breakthrough, what we might call mystical experiences. In fact, this would be, I think, for me at least, very much a mystical experience. But the mystical quality is not achieved by gaining insight into some greater or absolute truth, but rather in experiencing the phenomena of the world minus those elements of our attachment and hatred and so on that have been up to now getting in the way. They drop off. They fall away. And so it's like, as we've been describing in the Four Truths, if we begin to attend to the world more honestly and directly, embracing its dukkha, noticing how it is impermanent, it is without fixed self, its dukkha, that can lead us to a point where maybe suddenly, maybe gradually, we shift into another perspective. On a meditation retreat, one of the, the great uh, values of getting into a deep kind of practice of mindfulness and concentration is to actually experience such moments for oneself. I think that's very, very important. They're not going to last, however, and they may simply then become integrated into your awareness so you don't notice that anymore. Any more than I notice the absence of a shed in my back garden anymore. It becomes normative. And so often such experiences may occur once or, or twice, but very often after that they don't occur with the same degree of a radical rupture with the past. They're more normal, they're more simply a, a gradual getting used to this kind of perspective. And yet, of course, what we want, <laughs> what we want is to have that wonderful breakthrough again. But it, chances are we'll have it once in a real sense, May, maybe twice, I don't know, it'll depend on the individual person. But the point is, after a while, it just becomes more normal. And then the challenge is not to erect a shrine to, the, to emptiness any more than it would be to erect a little plaque to the absence of my shed, <laughs> but to get on with living your life. And this is why the four truths culminate not in nirvana, which is the third truth. The third, that's the kind of the portal, the access to another way of life a way of living in this world from another perspective that is not conditioned by greed, hatred, delusion. And that's what I'm going to look at tomorrow. This is called stream entry, and I'd like to consider what that might be about. And this, you can read ahead, it's in your handout, towards the end of the passage. Thank you very much. <laughs>